Ice Cream Man, Salesman, Dishwasher, Lumberjack, Superman Impersonator, Invisible Man, Boss for a Day, Speed Demon, Tomb Raider, Genie, Bizarro World Reporter, Tour Guide, Alien Ambassador, Charity Date, Co-Superman, Boy Astronaut, Millionaire, Gunslinging Duelist, Candid Camera Club Member, Helicopter Pilot, Courier for a Day, Organizer of the Boy Olympics, Hitman's Hostage, Bellhop, Assistant Magician, Jockey, Kryptonite Peddler, Mibmaster, Scotland Yard Inspector, Private Eye, Superboy for a Day, Famous Crooner, Boy Edison, Ham Radio Enthusiast, Elevator Boy, Amnesiac, Jungle Boy, X-Ray Seeing Eye Dog, Boxing Champ, Fourth Dimensional Ghost, Prince of Clowns, Charity Fundraiser, (sighs) Offensive Indigenous Stereotype, Pet Editor, Dog Biscuit Salesman, Boy of Steel, Time Traveler, Superman of the 50th Century, Cartoonist, Super Kid, Dinosaur Owner, Jet Bicycle Tester, Charity Fraud, Wonder Lad, Bearded Boy, Army Private, Gorilla, Superboy, Foreign Correspondent, Boy of Lead, Beggar, Boy from Mars, Jilted Fiance, Spendthrift, Miser, Giant, Fiction Author, Adoptee, Elastalad, Gilbert Knox, Club Reporter with a Photographic Memory, Nose-based lie detector, rock and rollson, telepath, quiz show contestant, human flamethrower, underworld mouthpiece, newspaper publisher, super suit operator, oil man, Texas Bolton, human robot, MC of the Midnight Scare Club, human incinerator, super lad of space, sleepwalker, supergirl truther, juvenile delinquent, Jim Morley, human octopus, movie director, phantom fingers, greatest shoplifter in the United States, hideous alien monster, wolfman, creaky old gent, Tiny Blighter in Knee Pants, Chorus Girl Julie Ogden, Gunsmoke Kate of 1871, Wild Animal Tamer, Orphan Tom Davis, King of Crime Winky McCoy, Middle-Aged Adult, Camp Counselor, Winder Washer, Boot Black, Barber, Waiter, Blind Man, Doorman, Congorilla, <sighs> Fat Boy of Metropolis, Famous Rock and Roller, Chip O'Duel, Castle Lord, Member of the Brave and Bold News Club, Trunken Bottle City Dweller, Earth Monitor, Forbidden Area Gardener, Rocket Ship Navigator, Giant Turtle Man, Super Baby, Aqualad Substitute, Reluctant Viking, Father, Train Vendor, Soda Jerk, Different Type of Offensive Indigenous Stereotype, Scotland Land Honorary Constable, Dinoray Freak, Revolutionary General for Alien Pacifists, Phantom Zone Investigator, Practical Joker, Tom Thumb, Hollywood Actor, Friend of Vorarian Fire People, Safecracker, Codebreaker, Human Porcupine, 31st Century Burglar, Interior Decorator, Leslie Lau, Lady Reporter, Human Metal Eater, Flame Bird, Quadruplet, Beatnik, Honorary Member of the Legion of Superheroes, Racist Caricature of an Indian Raja, Muscle Man, Snake Charmer, Decoy, Stage Musician, Magi the Magnificent, Captain of the Mary Celeste II, 1870 Army Private, Colossus of Metropolis, Greatest Thief in the Universe, Crooked Youth from Outer Space, Regular Baby, Sheep Shearer in 1000 BC, Bizarro World Inhabitant, Piano Maestro, Surgeon, Beauty Pageant Judge, Plutonian Blob, Paperboy, Female Member of the Olsen Fan Club, Jackie Oliver, Man with Chameleon Head, Island King, Hitler's Chief Military Advisor, Cyborg, yes. Daily Planet Cub reporter Jimmy Olsen has had a lot of roles in his life, but his greatest role is being Superman's pal. My name is Michael Hancock, and I read 85 issues of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen just to do this extended bit. (laughs) Also, I'm your host for this episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics, certain theories, and certain Jimmys in conversation. As you may have gathered from my subtle verbal cues, this month we're looking at two incarnations of long-running Superman supporting character Jimmy Olsen. 
with the first volume of Jack Kirby's run on the character and the more recent 12-issue maxi series by Max by Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber. Of course, no one person is capable of donning the red bow tie. With me in this transformative task are my cohorts, Andrew DeMann Hi. and Anna Papard. Hello. Anna, what do you have to report on the Jack Kirby run? <laughs> well, I, that's a lot to live up to, um, that intro, but I will do my best and we'll get into it. So, um, as that intro made clear, uh, Jimmy Olsen has a long, strange, and illustrious career. He was one of the many elements of the Superman mythos that was introduced within the Superman radio show of the 1940s, making his first named appearance in 1941 before being integrated into the comics. But it was the popularity of the 1950s Superman TV show that made Jimmy popular enough to warrant his own comic book title, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, which ran from 1954 to 1974. Wikipedia describes this series as, quote, containing stories of an often humorous nature. This is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that this is an oftentimes batshit series, chock full of the wild transformations and super dickery characteristic of the DC Silver Age, but often cranked up to 11. Jack Kirby took over the series at the end of the Silver Age with, with issue number 133, released in 1970. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware that before joining DC Comics, Kirby was one of the chief architects of the Marvel Comics universe. He was the co-creator and chief artist of the debuts of Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Thor, the Avengers, and the X-Men. He also co-created Captain America back in the Golden Age with, with Joe Simon. Kirby is, quite simply, one of the most prolific and influential creators in all of American comics. His departure from Marvel was not a happy one. The company wouldn't give him the credit and contract terms he wanted, requests that seem, in retrospect, pretty reasonable for someone of Kirby's stature. So Kirby joined Marvel's chief rival, a defection that was much hyped and discussed among comic book fans at the time. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen was Kirby's first comic for DC. According to interviews with Kirby and others who were there, Kirby chose to take on the Jimmy Olsen series because it was the lowest selling DC title without a set creative team, meaning he had a chance to turn around the title's fortunes without costing someone else their job. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen was both a strange and perfect match for Kirby's talents. Jimmy's past adventures don't really jive with the serious ambitions that characterize Kirby's work in the post-Marvel era. And yet, the already fantastical nature of Jimmy's adventures was able to support Kirby's interest in cosmic conflagrations and weird science. Kirby also had a history with teen characters, including the Golden Age Newsboy Legion, which he co-created with Joe Simon, and it reintroduces the Newsboy Legion in the pages of Jimmy Olsen. If you love Kirby, you'll probably enjoy his take on Superman's pal. All the hallmarks of Kirby are here. Big ideas and big machines that traverse space and multiple dimensions and tunnel to the center of the Earth, rendered in Kirby's customarily bombastic style, including some really spectacular and disorienting mergers of cartooning and photographic collage, a technique Kirby pioneered with Fantastic Four. There are in these comics worlds within worlds within worlds. The Newsboy Legion are doubled by their parents, the original Legion, and then reproduced again infinitely in the form of tiny clones that help facilitate a top-secret, Superman-approved eugenics experiment beneath the city of Metropolis, whose larger operations are overseen by a race of hyper-evolved and occasionally blissed-out beings known as the Harrys. If you're wondering if these comics, which also feature Jimmy becoming the head of a biker gang, known as the Outsiders who live in the wild place and sort of worship the Harrys, featured muddled commentaries on 60s and 70s counterculture, yes. Yes, they do. If you don't already love Kirby, the series might be a hard sell. 
The character of Jimmy Olsen quickly becomes somewhat lost in the midst of Kirby's larger ambitions, which included creating what's become known as the fourth world suite of stories and characters. Kirby's fourth world includes characters which are part of the New Gods mythos. This includes characters like Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, as well as the villain Darkseid. Darkseid is actually introduced in the Jimmy Olsen comics that we read for today's pod. To the extent that people remember this run on Jimmy Olsen, it's largely in relation to its role in helping develop the fourth world, whose concepts have since become important parts of the DC universe in both comics and various adaptations. There's also a two-part story that prominently features insult comic Don Rickles and his completely (laughs) unexplained bumbling doppelganger, Daily Planet Research Assistant Goody Rickles, who Kirby created for reasons. I don't know what those reasons are, and neither, it seems, does anybody else. It's very possible we will never know. All of this said, there's a ton of fun stuff we can discuss with this series, including the legacies of both Kirby and Jimmy Olsen and the convention of the teen sidekick in superhero comics. Are teen sidekicks valuable point-of-view characters, or are they annoying as heck? We'll talk about all of that and more on today's pod. Thank you, Anna. Andrew, do you have the scoop on the Maxi series? Yes, I do. Although I'm still not clear what a Maxi series is, but okay. Uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, who killed Jimmy Olsen, is written by Matt Fraction with pencils by Steve Lieber. It began in 2019 as a 12-issue maxi-series from DC Comics and quickly garnered a cult following for its satirical take on an iconic character. The story revolves around Superman's friend Jimmy faking his death and moving to Gotham City whilst trying to figure out who tried to have him killed. If this sounds like a noir, you're actually a long way off at this point. The series is a deeply ironic, deeply referential collision between Golden Age Jimmy Olsen tropes and contemporary social mores. Where recent writers have struggled with the absurd complexity and banality of the titular character, Fraction makes active use of Jimmy's IP baggage, leaning into the absurdity as far as imaginable with a character who seemingly never blinks at how bizarre his own history is. When taken seriously, Jimmy Olsen is a silly character with some minor plot function and character foil capacities. That's not what we have here, however. Fraction, who remains best known for his iconic send-up of Hawkeye for Marvel Comics, pairs with Lieber, who treaded similar waters on the superior foes of Spider-Man, which we covered in a previous podcast, to push the absurdity of Jimmy Olsen to the forefront and craft a story that is charmingly juvenile, engagingly nerdy, and deeply subversive. I have some issues with the balance and weight of the series as a whole, and I'm eager to discuss that with the panel today, but this is a dynamic new direction for a character that can be a little short on dynamism, historically, and that's a big accomplishment in itself. With our headlines set and our leads unburied, let us thus begin our investigation into Jimmy Olsen and issues of nostalgia, humor, and the changing roles of supporting casts. Who is Jimmy Olsen? Let's find out. Let's start with Jack Kirby here. What's our personal individual connections to Jack Kirby as a comic book creator? I'm asking in part because I'm not sure if I get him. Uh, his skills as an artist are, yeah, big, big statement. Yeah, but I, uh, his skills as an artist are clear. His significance to modern comics is really hard to overstate. Uh, but in terms of his interests and beliefs and how they manifest in his work, I feel I'm in much shakier grounds, particularly in terms of how these interests appear in this Jimmy Olsen run. This is so 
random, but I've been rewatching like strong bad emails lately, the relic of the <laughs> earlier internet. And I just when you said like his skills, his artistic skills, I totally heard that in a strong bad voice of like his skills of an artist. <laughs> anyway, never mind. That's a deep cut like reference for those of you out there who used to be fans of Homestar Runner. But um, but what well, well, can I ask you then, Michael? What is it that you feel like you don't get about Kirby? Is it like that you just like you you hear all this rhapsodizing about him, and then you see it, and you're just like, I just, I just, I don't. Yeah, know. like I don't quite know what this story is. Okay. I don't know what the like larger ideas he's trying to get at quite are. I read the essays that are that accompany this volume, and I'm like. Does that does that really match what's on the page here? And sort of, I guess. Well, which which ones of us have read the other Fourth World stuff? I've read most of it, so I, I had read most of that, and then I hadn't I hadn't actually read this before. So like this was the missing piece for me, but I'd read most of that stuff in the past. So it fit in with some of that stuff for me, although we were only kind of getting to it by the end of sort of the section of comics that we read for this pod. So are we, so we all get the visual stuff, right? We're not really needing to elaborate on that. His, his, his use of perspective, the, the kinetic energy, all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. That, that really, as someone who's <laughs> read a lot of the previous Jimmy Olsen stuff, that really like jumps out as yeah. a contrast. Well, in terms of like um, so, yeah. thematic elements of his storytelling, I think one of the big things that he gets really badly undercredited for uh, is for in the 1960s presenting a sort of technophilic perspective of science fiction uh, at a time when if it's a robot or it's a machine, it's evil. Uh, and mm -hmm. Kirby in his work, particularly in Fantastic Four, um, which I know Anna is very familiar with, um, he was taking science fiction ideas and he was making them beautiful and stunning and adventurous. Uh, and actually, like, like one of the early audiences that Marvel cultivated amongst sort of intellectuals was in the STEM fields. Uh, was people who were like, this is where someone is giving us machines and concepts and gadgets that I don't have to be existentially afraid of, that I can just sit there and stare at in wonder. Uh, and I think we see a lot of that in Jimmy Olsen, even though we kind of shouldn't, like I wasn't expecting it to be there. Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four, absolutely. Um, but again, his portrayal of technology is deeply engaging and way ahead of a curve that very much went his way. To such an extent that it's it's really hard to see how remarkable he is in that field um, in this day and age. Right. It's it's interesting in that I noticed in when I reread uh, this run that it puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that the villains here are not the ones who they 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 have adapted the technology. They have not created anything of themselves. It's the the good guys that have are the innovators here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, as I said, what makes it different from, say, like SF writers who are doing similar stuff, like maybe even just Asimov, um, is he can draw it. And that's so simple and stupid as an observation, but like, it's, it's enormous. Like his, his cars are stunning. His, his random machines in the middle of nowhere are just stunning. Um, so you can kind of um, appreciate them at a visceral level in a way that I think a lot of the SF technophilic writers couldn't capture which again puts Kirby in a class of his own. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to kind of separate, you know, because when we're talking about Kirby as a writer and artist on like a book like this or like any of the fourth world stuff, I mean, I do think there's a thing where I could see lots of people not liking it. You kind of have to go with his visuals being so bombastic and so innovative and so 
I want to think of like a better word than than like crazy, but I mean, I mean crazy in a good way. But um, but yeah, and like to me, it's like when I read this Jimmy Olsen, these Jimmy Olsen comics, I yeah, I don't know. I remember reading for like a post colonial class, like a new Bessie Phillip book, and everybody in the class kind of being like. I didn't get this. It was so confusing and like what was real and what wasn't. And I remember just being like, actually, it didn't bother me at all. I was able to just roll with it. And in retrospect, I was like, well, I read a lot of superhero comics. So (laughs) I feel like I can just read something like this Jimmy Olsen thing and just roll with it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like with Kirby as a writer, you're just kind of getting, getting more Kirby. I mean, it's like the way he draws is the way he writes. And he even has... There, I don't know whether <clears throat> I read this online, and so it had like some of the um, letters from like you know interview stuff with Kirby, like talking about his process and stuff, and that he had some great line about like when you like an impossible car creates impossible scenarios, and that was, and I thought that that was such an interesting like comment from someone who was like sort of an artist turned writer to a certain extent, although he was always a writer too. It was always, I mean, that was part of the reason he left Marvel is that he wasn't getting credited for that. But um, but yeah, I just, I loved that. Like, he's sort of like, well, the things, if I draw this crazy machine, then it's going to create a crazy story <laughs> and like vice versa. And that's sort of the principle that he's operating from. And either I think really, I really do think like either you kind of like love that and you're just like, whoa, it's just one thing after another. And it's just like, you know, you go with it or you can just be like, yeah, I don't know. Like, could use an editor for some of these ideas. And I think that that's a fair complaint. Yeah, I I originally read these without the letter column included, and I'm very glad they were here. Uh, I think they gave some context, even if they didn't quite always match what was on the page, but that the impossible car one was mm-hmm. particularly good. And uh, you create the fantastic visuals and the story kind of finds itself i guess it's weird too because that's something we criticize in modern cinema too with like a michael bay Mm. where the spectacle is what drives it right the story is just getting you to the spectacle i don't know if if kirby somehow evades that or not perspective i've read michael bay defender pieces that have (laughs) largely go along those lines yeah that yeah spectacle is the advantage of film and it should be used in such a manner I agree with that in principle, but I just think (laughs) that there's a lot of instances in which the spectacle doesn't live up to its own, you know, worthiness. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, there are moments in, like, some of those Transformer movies where I'm just like, the Transformers do look awesome, and it actually does sort of, like, live up to that principle. But I think Kirby is sort of, like, a preeminent example where it's like, if you buy in on Kirby's art, that is, like, the spectacle is like living up to the promise of spectacle being its own story. And I think that some things that try to pass themselves off as that are not doing that. But to me, this is an example that sort of, you know, proves that that can be the case. If I was a little more up with our own uh, back catalog, this is where I would name the number of the episode where we looked at the G.I. Joe versus Transformers series. It's yes. <laughs> probably as close to uh Kirby drawing Transformers as we'll ever get. Yeah. 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 And I mean, uh, yeah, I remember from that pod. I mean, that was the thing I particularly like liked about that as well. I do have one note about um, our art being watered down in Jimmy yeah. Olsen here. Um, Vince Coletta. I don't know if anyone's familiar with his story. No, tell us. Okay. Yeah. So Vince Coletta is regarded as the worst inker in the history of comics. Some people. <laughs> 
so what Vince Coletta was doing behind Kirby's back was he was not inking um, some background details because Vince Coletta was kind of lazy. Uh, so we've seen comparisons now of like what the image should have been in pencil and what actually got published because Coletta like erased stuff and then oh. inked simpler backgrounds. Um, so yeah, what we're getting is, is Kirby diluted in Jimmy Olsen. Uh, and this actually led to eventually Kirby kind of turning on Coletta. As you know, Kirby was a company man. He never wanted to, as you said, Anna, he never wanted to take anyone's job or anything like that. But eventually, because Kirby like never paid attention to his, his published work. So he didn't know what was happening for a long time mm. until an editor brought it to him uh, and said, look what Coletta's doing. Uh, and that led to Coletta getting kicked to some lower tier book or something like that. Reading the introduction that, um, what's his name wrote for this? Uh, Evanye? Uh, Evanye, Mark Evanye. Yeah. Evanye. Yeah, that the idea of that, uh, in addition to that, that people were retouching all the Olsen and Superman faces, yeah. the idea that yeah, you yeah. would hire Kirby as an artist and then get someone to like draw over him. It's just. Well, you sense like sort of a mm, sort of a fight between sort of comics fans and comics producers, you know, with kind of Kirby. And I mean, that's that's part of like, let's be honest, that's part of where the Kirby fandom stems from, too. I mean, that he's, you know, got this identity as sort of like an underappreciated auteur and like people ascribe a lot of meaning to that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, he's coming over to D.C. because he does have this like huge fan following and he is like this, you know, he is one of the absolute superstar creators of the medium at that point and was already getting kind of canonized by that point by 1970. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, this is when we have a huge growth of sort of fan cons and everything, like in part because of sort of the Marvel fandom that, you know, Kirby was obviously a huge part of. And then you have companies who want to sell properties, right? I mean, they sell Jimmy Olsen and the Superman mythos. They don't necessarily, they're not, even though they promoted Kirby as a superstar artist, they're not necessarily sort of in the business of promoting Kirby at this point in time. This was like sort of before the era that we would have in sort of the later 80s into the 90s of the superstar artist who can go and form their own company and just like mm -hmm. be a writer artist and sell on their name alone. I mean, Kirby was sort of at the beginning of that, but you definitely, I feel like, see that tension play out here and sort of we want to give Kirby his own space, but we also this is the Superman mythos and we got to preserve that brand first and foremost. Yeah. And how much did they want Kirby versus how much did they want Marvel to not have Kirby? Anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the other creative team. Uh, while we're on the subject of creators, what's your history with Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber? Are you fond or not so fond of their work elsewhere? And how does that work kind of jive with what we've got here? Um, well, okay. So I'm, I'm a fan of Fraction. Fraction is, is very talented to me. Um, he's one of those writers that can go astray, I find. But I, I like that he's always swinging big, so to speak, and, and trying to do cool stuff. Um, I think his run on X-Men is criminally under uh yeah. i know a lot of people don't like it <laughs> um I'm, I'm i'm with them mostly but <laughs> I, actually i think that's an example where he didn't could have swung bigger oh, uh, okay. no I, I liked his character work he was doing um but i think he was hampered by the kind of status quo of the x-men at the time well i think he was also, hampered by his pencilers too he, he, I, he, yeah i was like greg land penciled a bunch of that yeah. Run, you know? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Because, I mean, I was like, I don't know, there was some Nightcrawler stuff I didn't hate from that run, but I was also like, oh, <laughs> does he have to be drawn by Greg Lynn? It's so stiff. And, oh, mm. 
so yeah, I, I like Fraction there. I really liked Fraction on Sex Criminals, as I mentioned. Um, at least in the early issues, I think it got a little too self-serious after a while and lost its own metaphor. I'm a big fan of Casanova, which goes the other direction, like the biggest swings you can imagine, but uh, eventually goes maybe too far into parody. Right, right. See, but I might argue that about this Jimmy Olsen, actually. But anyway. Yes. I uh, Yeah. I'm not disagreeing necessarily. Uh, and then Luger, uh, as I said, we did on Spectacular Foes of Spider-Man. I, I think he's really yeah. good at creating that kind of grounded absurdity. I yes. forgot about the kind of uh, Foes of Spider-Man because a lot of his other work tends towards more serious directions. Yeah, he's been around a long time. Just funny because he does comedy so well. Like, I mean, I yeah. was just really thinking in this book, like how great the comedic timing was. And I was just like, man, I appreciate that. It's so good. Yeah. While doing research for this episode, I was listening to an interview he did with with the aspiring Kryptonian YouTube series. Okay. And he describes when he's going over his influences, uh, he draws on figures like, yeah, the old Little Lulu comics from 70 years ago. And uh, I, I can kind of I can kind of see that kind of comic timing at work. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. he's a Kubert school graduate too, isn't he? Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> that that weird little college in New Jersey oh, no. has been cracking uh, him out. He went to uh, Joe Kubert school, as he uh, says himself, not a graduate. Oh, oh. <laughs> scandal. <laughs> Part of what I find interesting about Jimmy Olsen comics in general is that he is, at his core, a supporting character. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to put him at the front of the book, and how well do these books foreground Jimmy as a character? Uh, I think we've talked, touched on this a little bit in the respective introductions, but I think it's worth digging further into. how to, And also, how do these books develop their own supporting cast, and how well do they do in that endeavor? Yeah, I don't know which book it makes sense to start with, except for that maybe with the Kirby, just because I think that that's one of the major critiques you could obviously make of this book. I think it's less interested in developing Jimmy Olsen than it is interested in developing a whole new universe of characters, kind of <laughs> kind of based on Thor comics, but not. And, you know, Jimmy just happens to be a part of that in a way. One of the things that you could say in favor of Kirby is that he's modernizing the series in a way because he's creating sort of through lines and a seriality that the series hadn't had up to that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, part mm -hmm. of what Jimmy has so many wild transformations because it wasn't really a serial series in the same sense that the Marvel comics were with their sort of shared universe and everything. So he's kind of bringing a little bit of that to DC by creating this suite of titles that all interconnect and starting that off with the Jimmy Olsen series. So, you know, introducing Darkseid and like some of the characters from from the fourth world in the jimmy olsen comics and then you have to see how that's going to play out and it's going to lead into these other series so you can see him sort of bringing that some into the title a little bit although the place of sort of jimmy olsen specifically in that is like a little bit unclear like an obvious way to do it would be to have him be more like a grounded point of view character but that's sort of a funny position for jimmy olsen too because he's not a very <laughs> grounded character so yeah i definitely feel like he just gets pretty much lost like within the context of of the kirby run which you know if you care about jimmy i guess you're like upset about that if you're just sort of like let's just have kirby kirby nonsense then i, I guess you're not really that sad about but yeah if you took kind of the garfield minus garfield concept and yep. applied it to yeah, the series yeah uh, 
Jimmy Olsen minus Jimmy Olsen is almost the same comic. Yep. Exactly. Well, can we talk about the Newsboy Legion though? Because it's just so it's just so Kirby. I'm just, you know, I mean, Kirby <laughs> is like a former like kid gang member. <laughs> like, he was a Newsboy you know, too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like just him do it's just so Kirby. It's like him doing like this like little thing that he loves. And then can we talk like about the flippa dippa character? Ooh, who is the, um, yeah. Uh, I mean we should very, talk about it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's it's an un, unfortunate um racialized portrayal um of a character uh-huh. which I, I just don't even know what to make of it. Um saying it's unfortunate and hasn't aged well is like probably the kindest thing you can say. But well, on the other hand, the character is so like like right in the opening issue, the newsboy legion is going in their impossible car or whatever. And then they're sneaking up on these people and I'm like, well, but the guy in the scuba gear who's this African-American kid, I'm like, well, he's in his scuba gear for this mission. This is like not going to work. And then like two panels later, it's like he's sneaking up on the villains from this convenient stream and it was actually the most instrumental. And I was like, you know, mm-hmm. proven wrong. I guess he is the best <laughs> character in the Newsboy Legion. Anyway, yeah. yeah, it was uncomfortable, that portrayal of that character. Yeah, there's only basically two members of the legion that that have personalities uh him and uh the more cartoonish kind of kid yeah i don't even remember there's like scrapper uh, and gabby and i don't know which is which he stands out more uh unfortunate speaks a lot in the third person yeah i i mean i guess like when i'm talking about it being sort of an unfortunate portrayal i mean it's the degree to which he's played as comic relief is just mm-hmm. racist and it's not great. Given that he and his father are the, or I'm not sure if, if they're the only uh, African-American characters, oh, they're certainly the only ones that have extended roles. I, I think it comes back to um, some of the stuff Kirby was doing at Marvel too. Like he clearly, he's been outspoken that he wanted black representation in comics and he, he fought for it on several occasions but there's that difference between, you know, representation and good representation. So you can see it as a positive step. Um, but I think we have to be conscious of the, I mean, exactly. Yeah. What it's, saying. it's certainly it's more than, off. it's certainly more than the older Jimmy Olsen ever did. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, to be fair, like it's, it's, there's a lot going on here in terms of, you know, on the one hand, the flip a dip a character on his own is like really not great. And I definitely see the legacy of some of those like golden age, um, African-American sidekick caricature characters like whitewash, uh, timely. Um, I see him definitely in, in a legacy of that in a really horrible way. On the other hand, he portrays him having this like scientist father who's, you know, a member of this top secret organization and sort of you can see him trying to do positive representation in that way. Um, and, you know, Kirby's a co-creator of Black Panther and like did, you know, stories about prejudice and hate and pages of Fantastic Four and other places. And as somebody, you know, liberated concentration camps and very much cares about these issues. But yeah, I flip a dip a portrayal that that could have used an editor that could have used another eye for sure yeah it's like he wants to make good representation but he doesn't know how and, and all he's drawing yeah. for is stereotype like sometimes yeah. t'challa fell into that as well mm-hmm. uh what about the uh maxi series end of things so so, so i would argue there's uh, some kind of cool subtleties happening there that that enable the comedy in interesting ways like, like jimmy olsen has to be oblivious to how silly he is um, he has to want more than Superman's sidekick. 
and he has to sort of have like almost this is a really bad reference but like a mr magoo like capacity (laughs) blindly through these dense internal politics including with like lex Luthor and stuff like that um so he's this kind of like um hyper privileged character but who also has to suffer a lot that privilege actually makes it funnier for him to be suffering so much well the the privilege aspect is interesting like i'm not 100 percent up on the olsen uh history but this series puts a lot of emphasis on his role as basically a coming from a family of a lot of wealth. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's in, it does go a long way to, again, separate him from just the guy that follows Superman around. It feels like part of the original idea of Jimmy is that he's the every boy. Uh, it's like, what yeah. if you were Superman's pal? But if he is also a rich millionaire, even if he doesn't draw on his own trust fund, it changes that a lot, right? Yeah, I think so. And the narrative really kind of focuses on that in the contrast to Lex and the contrast to Jimmy's brother, who's the villain. Um, I also think it was doing something kind of cool in terms of um, finding other ways to make Jimmy as, I don't know, silly in this world as he is in the world of comics collecting. Mm -hmm. Lately, he's considered the silly Superman side character by comics collectors. So you make him this sort of buffoon character within that world, like at the Daily Bugle, where he's not taken seriously at all. And the scenes with Lois Lane are delightful, where <laughs> it's just so condescending. And oh, buddy, this you Lane tried. vaping is for teens, yes. teens. That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in the book is uh, the very brief uh, one with him talking to a therapist, where she goes over. Uh, Jimmy, you are actually five different people or so in one, (laughs) uh, which both speaks to uh, past stories where he is literally divided into multiple people, but also to the fact that he is this conglomeration of of different storytelling approaches where some writers play him very straight as a war correspondent. Uh, Some play him as the ridiculous transforming boy. Yeah. And we have to note that in the cinematic universe, they had so little ideas for what to do with him that they just offed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does not fit with the cinematic tone at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that speaks to so much of what, what I loved about this series and what I hate about the cinematic tone, <laughs> which is just like you see in a comic like this, just a total brace of the wonderful silliness of superhero comics. Whereas you see in something like the man of steel film, like, you know, an embarrassment about those things. Like, I mean, even, you know, in terms of a toned down color palette, like we just can't even have the color of superhero comics, right? And whereas something like this, I mean, the thing that I loved about it was how like unneurotic Jimmy is. He is just sort of falling into these situations and he's loving it and he's not experiencing shame and he just loves the silliness of that superhero world. And I was totally hooked, like right from the first like sort of inciting incident where he's on the space mission and then he turns into the giant turtle, which is, you know, referenced <laughs> all those crazy transformations. And then he crashes into the city like while being hugged by Superman. And then there's a great panel of him like naked lying in the street, which is, you know, it's cut pretty low, so it's pretty sexy. And, you know, just it's very like postcoital, like it's very like, whoa, that was amazing. And he's just like, <laughs> it was so wonderful because it gets right to the heart of kind of the sort of, I don't want to like, I don't want to go overboard with like the sexual thrill of it because it's not sex in like a traditional sense. But I mean, it's like, 
orgiastic pleasure in the silliness and the bombasticness of like superhero stories and it just sort of really got to the heart of that for me and i was just like yes that's the pleasure that i take in superhero comics like that is like the jouissance of like superhero comics and that just like in that one panel and that one sequence really got to the heart of that and i really really loved that but that's an extension of the 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 normal role right the idea that jimmy olsen is a viewpoint character for people to imagine their relationship with superman and if mm-hmm. you look at Superman with an erotic gaze and holy crap, either everybody <laughs> or a lot of people do, right? Depending on how far we want to go on sort of um, um, psychology levels, um, then enacting that makes a ton of sense. Like there should be a sexual component to Jimmy's relationship with Superman. It, it should be something that's played with at the narrative level. Uh, and I, I think I there's guess a balance maybe- there. Yeah, for sure. But I guess maybe what I like liked about that scene was like, it wasn't limited to that. It wasn't that I thought that this was a slashy scene necessarily. It was just that there was like orgiastic pleasure in the transformation and the action and like the silliness of the situation. Like that was the pleasure. Like it's a more diffuse pleasure than just like the pleasure that he might take in being embraced by Superman. It was all of those things. Right. It's It's covering all the layers. turned on by the entire experience. Right. And that's what I really loved about that because that's to me, the diffuse eroticism of superhero comics is that like they're sexy because of these wild situations and because of these limitless possibilities and because of the invitation to not feel shame about sort of, you know, those desires. And that's what I really, really liked about that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I give, fraction a lot of credit here that superman is sidelined for most of the series like he but he manages to still like do a lot of work conveying the depth of their relationship with the way that superman's used in the first few issues and the way the series ends i i wasn't sure the ending would work as well on a reread but it did i i really the moment they have together at the end feels really good yeah. In a way that, given that DC's big event for the past year is look at all our evil universes, uh, it feels really counter to the tone of the comics at the moment. Yeah, and maybe we see that in the sort of contrast between his relationship with Superman and his relationship with Batman. Yes. Which is deeply I... antagonistic and delightful. <laughs> yes, absolutely delightful. Yeah, and there's probably... I'd seen, I'd seen that panel before of like, yeah, so we find out in the comic that Alfred's been paying people to laugh at Bruce Wayne's jokes all these years, and uh, Bruce makes him pay back all that money out of his salary, which is a total dick move. But you know, Silver Age super degree. But um, I'd seen the panel before. This was was my first time reading this whole series, but I'd seen the panel with you know Batman with the comedy arrow on his head, like saying, "Also, I'm hilarious," and like really, really, really choice panel. I hear all of Batman's lines in this series as if they're voiced by Diedrich Bader from the Brave and the Bold cartoon, and okay. I think that's the way to do it. I was thinking Will Arnett, but... <laughs> also works. <laughs> yeah, I loved I loved Superman in the Jimmy Olsen series. The, the sequence where he's doing the heartwarming segment with Superman on the roof about, and Superman's going to tell us about some of his other amazing powers. He's like, look, I can bend my thumb all the way over there. Woo, super bendy. <laughs> it's just really, really adorable. And I love seeing that like depiction of kind of wholesome Superman because, you know, again, particularly as a contrast with kind of the films, but, you know, we have had a turn back to sort of wholesome Superman in in some respects in recent years, but that's definitely always my favorite Superman. People think that Superman's boring, but he's not. And it's a really interesting role in the sense that like, we tend to think of Clark Kent as the ordinary persona, but around Jimmy, he gets to be ordinary. 
yeah as superman yeah yeah and that sort of seems like something that he values about the relationship with jimmy you know yeah god that's like one of the scenes that made me laugh the hardest was the one in the daily planet i think it's just in the first issue or the second issue where he's just like gee i don't know that sounds like a job for superman and then does the big comedy wink <laughs> and the publisher is just like okay <laughs> it was so good again oh, that, like really good comedic timing of like the libra art Both of these books attempt to engage with humor in some fashion, and I say attempt uh, a little more with the Kirby side. Uh, Kirby has a somewhat infamous two-issue engagement with Don Rickles and or Rickle-resembling affiliates. Uh, Fraction has a history of books that explore humor and pastiche, such as uh, Sex Criminals and Casanova. To what extent are these funny books? I'm the Kirby, it's like, Mm, mileage is going to vary a lot on that Don Rickles storyline. I mean, it was, it's, it's weird. It's definitely weird. I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't even have an opinion. I don't know what it was going for. And like, I looked up a little bit of the history of it too. And there is sort of a semi-interesting history in which Don Rickles gave permission for the appearance because the idea was just, he was going to appear in a cameo and like do an insult of Superman and it was going to be super funny. But then Kirby took it in this weird direction of creating like a, a Goody Rickles like character and putting him in a superhero costume. And it just goes on and on. And he's really the focus of like the two issues. Um, again, this is arguably a case in which like maybe Kirby should have had like somebody sort of working with him on that. Perhaps I'm, I'm not sure. It really, I really, I like either you're going to like love just the zaniness of that, or you're just going to be like, what the heck? I, I don't really have an opinion. Has he ever done comedy? Has he ever done comic strips? Kirby? Yeah. Mm. I, can't I don't think, think so. Anything. No, I don't think so. I think he went straight into comic books. Okay. Cause to me, there's kind of a, a cynical attempt at comedy there in that you know i don't know what's funny you know who knows what's funny don rickles i'm just gonna <laughs> bring him in and that'll cover it maybe it's just dated i don't know it didn't work for me i feel like it's got at least the cadence of rickles although it's hard to say how much of that is uh Avanier and his co-writer and it's not exactly like the best don rickles either by any means we have talked about other characters at least providing comedy relief in this series. So there was at least a nod towards that kind of approach. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah unfortunately, like a lot of the comedy was sort of has those racist tones as like, you know, yes. flip a dip of being sort of this comedic character. But, um, but there's also the other guy who gives whose name I keep forgetting, who gives kind of a child thing kind of accent to things like a, I, I imagine him with a kind of a Bronx town. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was reading all the voices with, like, that accent. Yes. <laughs> like, either Brooklyn or Bronx accent. But, like, um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't associate Kirby with being particularly skilled with comedy. I, like, I think almost how he works a little bit better for me is just, you know, having these big, serious, ponderous moments that are so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And but him investing in them seriously is kind of almost where the appeal comes from. I mean, I think about one of my favorite, favorite panels of his from all time, like from the from the Mr. Miracle series, which is part of the fourth world. 
and you know big barda and mr miracle sort of facing each other and having this very serious but very ridiculous conversation of like we're so in love we're going to go to apocalypse and rip the heart out of granny goodness and it's just like it's so wonderful because it's like super romantic but it's just like every single word of it is ridiculous it's like we're going to apocalypse to rip the heart out of granny goodness and it's like i love you so much it's just like oh my god that's the best thing but so yeah i i kind of prefer him not in a comedic mode personally yeah and i think there's a, a sort of reflection on the time like i laughed a lot when i was reading jimmy olsen by jack kirby and not because jack kirby wanted me to you know what i mean like there's there's a lot in there that's just so dated that it's kind of funny and i feel like <laughs> guilty like taking that pleasure in the, in the book from such a legend but it's there well, there were definitely a few lines about sort of the counterculture that you could not help, but you know, you see the whole city that the that the that the what were they called? The outsiders, the biker gang has constructed, and then there's just a line like, "I had no idea that dropouts could be so motivated." <laughs> it was, I'm paraphrasing that wasn't it, but it was almost as explicit as that, and it was just like, "What?" <laughs> it was very strange. Yeah. I think we've touched on the fraction side of things here. Do we have anything else to say in that aspect? Um, just that I think for me, and this, I think I already know that I disagree with you guys on this one. I feel like there's a, a, a dramatic sort of imbalance in, in that, you know, we always talk about comic relief, how you need that in sort of a sad story in order to accentuate that thing. Mm -hmm. I felt like I needed dramatic relief. Like it was just joke after joke after joke. And I wasn't identifying with Jimmy to really any degree i wanted some sort of i don't know weight or gravity to make the jokes funnier for me and i, I think this might also be just because i'm comparing it to hawkeye uh where you yeah. did have a very sympathetic portrayal of hawkeye as this sort of sad loser with you know self-destructive tendencies jimmy I think, has those but they're funny yeah i think i'm i'm with you that uh i mean his relationship with batman is a good case in point that it's clearly a sort of like acting out in response to the, his temporarily lost relationship with Superman, but it never becomes, if it became a little more foregrounded, it would give it a lot more pathos. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know what you mean. And I do think that that's a valid criticism, but I mean, I can think of sort of moments where that did work a little bit better, you know, after the, after the doctor, what is it? Dr. Mantel, the scientist mm -hmm. dies. There's a scene, which I wasn't sure how I felt about where Jimmy is walking with Clark and Lois yeah. and being like, I just saw him die in like, uh, whatever it was like microspace or whatever. It was horrible. He disintegrated before my eyes. And he's just like really upset. And Clark and Lois are just like, <laughs> and I mean, it was sort of like a good sort of disjointed moment for me. But I think the moment that I keep thinking about, which really, I really, really liked in terms of I felt like it had kind of like a sadness and a hope and all those things bound up. It was like three panels at the end of one of the issues. It was one of the issues that dealt with Jimmy's funeral that wasn't. And he's dressed in the in the pilot's outfit because he's going to pilot Lex Luthor's helicopter later. And he's going on the lamb and he's like, I'm going to go on the lamb as like Timmy Olsen, who may or may not wear a fake mustache. I haven't decided yet. And you have this really like wonderful thing where he's like really sad with his head down in one panel and then like looks up and like just has this like hope and glow in his eyes as he puts on this ridiculous <laughs> fake mustache. And it's just like. 
that sequence, I mean, it would not be funny if it was drawn any, like it would not be as good if it was drawn any other way, but it's just the, the, the sort of mixing of tones there where it is so sad. He's at his own funeral and all of his friends are crying about him and he's having to give up his life and go on the run. And he's so sad. And then like just that contrast of the hope and the ridiculousness, just sort of the mix of emotions there was sort of a moment that like really, really worked for me. But I also think that your criticism is fair, particularly as the series goes on. And I think mm -hmm. it goes off the rails in a way that it does lose a lot of that groundedness. I would say that I liked the first half better than the second half. I think the ending wor really worked for me in terms of balancing the more dramatic tone. But like for an example of a place where it didn't work, um, his last conversation with his brother. Yeah. Where it tries to play up his history with drag as a comedy, as well as this dramatic scene and uh, does not work well. Yeah, the drag scene I have mixed feelings about. I do like that it sort of, again, had that shamelessness about it. Like he just comes mm -hmm. into the room dressed as a woman and looks beautiful and he's drawn beautifully and his brother responds to him as though he's beautiful and then they dance and it just it doesn't dwell on the weirdness of that. It's just like whatever. And I don't honestly think it's like making some kind of incest joke or anything. It's just like it's just present. Jimmy looks hot as a woman and this is a thing yeah. that he does. And it's like, Which is, yeah, another like great so the lack of emphasis on that as a joke is like nice. But at the same time, like that is a lot to bring in. And then the relationship with the brother. Yeah, like I, I did like some of the seriousness of that at the beginning of the run where like there is like dramatic heft to the relationship. And then by the end, it's just like, oh, my brother tried to kill me. Let's move on. And I yeah, I do think your criticism really holds for that. Yeah, it feels like there was a note missing about the brother. Like mm -hmm. he he doesn't have the depth. I mean, Lex Luthor has more depth here than he does, which mm -hmm. I guess Luthor's been around longer, but still. I mean, one of the things, it's not even a criticism since it's a thing that I really, really like, but I saw so much Venture Brothers in the Jimmy Olsen <laughs> series, like particularly like it's almost like Jimmy Olsen is almost like exactly the character of Hank Venture. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, again, that's not a criticism since I love Venture Brothers so much, but I did find it a smidge, smidge, smidge derivative of that. And mm. I don't know, I wasn't sure if you guys sort of felt that too, because I know you guys both know Venture Brothers. Venture Brothers, I associate with a more kind of cynical edge. Not that like the show does have its joyful bits too, mm -hmm. but it's so much about like Dr. Venture's um, like failures as a person mm -hmm. in a way that like the series could dwell a lot more. The series like frames Jimmy's failures, but doesn't quite dwell on them in the same tone I associate yeah well yeah i guess i mean i was thinking of specifically the character of hank venture since he definitely oh, yeah. has that kind of like he's yeah, encountered a lot this of horror hank. and yet continues to encounter like and continues to embrace things with this hopefulness that is like yeah. totally yeah. out of step with the rest of his world and not <laughs> in step with the things that he's experienced and yet when i think about something like that putting on the fake mustache thing i was like that could just straight up be out of venture brothers yeah and, like hank venture well they come from the same archetype in a way which arguably derives from Jimmy in a way that like uh, there's a lot of um, kind of the Johnny quest in Hank mm -hmm. and a lot of the Johnny quest approach can be mm -hmm. arguably traced back to Olsen type characters, the teenage uh, follower of a like more epic superhero. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I just wanted to bring up the comparison because, like, maybe it does get at that criticism that you had to, like, that it's not, like, grounded enough. Because Venture Brothers is an example of a show that's not grounded at all in a way and yet definitely has, like, sort of cynicism and pathos that can be really, really effective. And, like, arguably more so than this Jimmy Olsen series, although I don't think it's necessarily a fair comparison because they're doing different things. And Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, like, yeah, I was thinking, I found myself thinking a lot about that comparison and I was like, well, does, like, the Jimmy Olsen series sort of stand out in comparison? into that or is it just like an inferior version of venture brothers which again you can multiple things can exist and it shouldn't be reduced <laughs> to that but it was definitely something i thought about yeah both of these texts are to a certain extent uh legacy texts in that they are trying to do a take on a well-established character and bring old elements back into circulation but also put their own spin on it and also introduce or incorporate a sense of Jimmy as someone who engages with either the future or the like world as it is now, the kind of contemporary or even projecting further. How well do you think these books uh, handle that kind of dual balancing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I would say about the Kirby one, only because he comes in at the end of the Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen era. So it's like Jimmy Olsen wasn't sort of actually as prominent a character after this run as like, so it wasn't sort of like that this was this bold new relaunch for Jimmy necessarily as this being sort of the end of Jimmy's prominence for some time. I mean, he's had had moments of prominence sort of throughout, but a lot of what he was in the Silver Age got significantly walked back in the sort of uh, post-crisis, like, 1980s era that resets the DC mythos and tries to make it more grounded and get rid of a bunch of that Silver Age silliness. And then you have that Silver Age silliness reintroduced in, in like, the Grant Morrison's various crisis events um, of the 2000s, where which do prominently feature Jimmy and a lot of Jimmy's wild transformations and history in... Um, interesting ways which you know was a major bringing back a lot of that crazy silver age silliness back into the dc universe so in that sense something like well i mean the jimmy olsen series has a long legacy because of the fourth world stuff too i mean Mm -hmm. uh, like all the fourth world new god stuff were big big elements of all those the the morrison um justice league stuff and all the multiple crisis events but i'm not even going to get the name you know final crisis and all of those events which i have read and uh i'm not a big fan of morrison so i i i like in theory him bringing back a lot of those elements but i'm just not a particular big fan personally of his writing if we talk about um not having grounded emotional stakes um that would be my issue <laughs> with morrison um but so yeah in that sense there's a, there's sort of like a big legacy for this stuff and i mean one of the legacies for the jack kirby series would be something like this fraction Libra series which although it's i would say more in conversation with kind of the, the pre-kirby stuff um definitely has to be seen as an influence on that as well yeah i think it's not a problem for me because I, I don't have an affection towards the golden age Jimmy Olsen stuff, but I, I can see a fan of that stuff being offended by what, what Fraction and Lieber are doing, essentially saying this was stupid and silly and you were wrong to like it to some degree. You think that's what they're doing? I don't. Yeah. There's a little bit it crosses that, the line to parody for me. It, there's so many like nods to it that are like, you would have to have read say 85 
issues of Silver Age, Jimmy <laughs> Olsen, to get this. And I don't know, it's, it, it does push into farce in places, for sure. It's that weird balance between far, pastiche and tribute. Yeah. I think there's a bit on both sides. I did not read it as having like that negative tone at all. I really read it as a celebration and not like making fun of those things. I mean, if we think about it in the legacy of sort of the redeeming of some of the DC Silver Age, like very much in the legacy, too, of redeeming the Batman 60s television show, which, you know, the the captions like the mm. this like and everything that we have in this are definitely like, I mean, I'm like reading that in like the, the Batman 66 narrator voice, which I can't do a good impression of. But it's, you know, it's like, what's this Jimmy Olsen encountering an unusual headline? Like, I mean, it's like so yeah. in that voice all the time. And so, you know, you have something like the Batman 66 comic book, which is like, you know, embracing that legacy of Batman and, 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 you know, all of those Silver Age things, which is, again, that started earlier, like, um, with various things, and especially sort of some of those Grant Morrison things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, I read it as kind of like part of a redemption of kind of that history and sort of incorporating that history back into the universe in a way. I didn't read it as having that sort of making fun of people who liked that at all. But, but I mean, that's interesting kinda... that we had such a different take on it. Yeah, no, it is. And, and again, I'm not in a good place to make this argument because i don't have an attachment to it but to me it feels like where it does appreciate those things it's as camp uh or yeah. or, or kitsch right which is not well, the way the original audience experienced it true although like i, I think i don't know i yeah i would I, I mean i can't speak for the original audience uh having read those comics very recently <laughs> i certainly i certainly got most of my pleasure of it as camp too and maybe that's Maybe that's okay. Maybe that is how we treat older things. Um, I mean, a lot of my Kirby enjoyment also also comes from camp. I think think that this is going to maybe it depends on your view of camp, though. Like, I mean, camp and its true kind of like queer meaning is not a joke. It's like deadly serious. Like, I mean, that's part of it. So, like, I mean, to me, I was sort of reading the embrace of camp in this series on that level. And I mean, that gets me right back to sort of like the sexual implications of that scene in the first issue. If it's like showing Jimmy experiencing orgiastic pleasure from transforming into a turtle man Mm -hmm. and like crashing with Superman through the city, that is taking the earlier material seriously because it's being like there was a consequence and an adult pleasure that you could gain from the things that were present in those comics. And to me, that would be kind of the counterpoint to the argument that it's making fun of these things. Cause I saw it more as embracing them on like, you know, I don't want to say like, like adult and serious are like really hard terms to use, yeah. and but I saw it ones. as like sort of genuinely embracing sort of the serious underbelly of the queerness that existed in those comics mm-hmm. in a way that I found positive personally. Mm-hmm. But um, again, I, I do find it really interesting that we had that very different reading of it. Yeah, I guess it, it is. I think there's that, that level of subjectivity, but I, I think I guess it's how you interpret irony right? There's a layer of irony here to me that I think a fan of the golden age could find offensive. But as I said, like I took pleasure in it exactly as you guys did. And I, I read it that way. I just don't know if that differentiation in the pleasure can be perceived as an evolution or if it can be seen as stepping on the original in order to get over. Um, well, maybe it know. depends on kind of the place of the Jimmy Olsen character in this like Fraction Libra series. I mean, I saw him really at times as an author sur- or a reader surrogate figure mm. more than a character, like a character that we're with rather than like laughing at. I mean, think about the thing where he's having the conversation with his 
you know, <laughs> the intergalactic jewel thief wife. He's like, the last time you were in Gorilla City, Jimmy. And he's just like, what do you mean? Like, I was in Gorilla City since then. He's like, how many times do you go to Gorilla City? It's a city of gorillas. I go there all the time. And I mean, to me, that's like, if you read that in a meta way, that's like, who wouldn't want to spend time in Gorilla right. City? That's not a silly thing that we should be laughing at. It's like, I want to go to freaking Gorilla City. And it works perfectly in comics where you can draw a city full of gorillas and embrace the kind of equal reality of a city full of gorillas versus a city full of human beings because it's comics and to me i like yeah i definitely had a more positive spin on that it's yeah. just like why wouldn't we want to go to gorilla city it's great i think it offers a really nice alternative to main dc comics at the moment in that sense and that's it for this episode if you have any comments you'd like to send our way please do follow us on Twitter at three panel contrast. That's the number three, not the letter. Uh, next episode, we will be looking at Daredevil, specifically the Bendis and Malieve run, as well as the Mark Wade run. And I guess what we have left is recommendations. Uh, I would like to recommend two books, uh, the similarly toned uh, Mark Russell and Stephen Byrne recent Wonder Twins series. And my like really intense recommendation is all of the 50s and 60s Jimmy Olsen comics I read. Uh, <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter or if you follow uh, the podcast on Twitter, you have seen a lot of these panels recently. I have a lot more that I will be sharing. <laughs> Uh, every one of the every one of those Jim Olsen roles uh, I mentioned appeared in one of the first eighty five issues. Uh, <laughs> feel free to find them all. When Michael was doing that intro, he said that we had we could interrupt him if we got sick of the list, but we just let him keep going. Yeah, there was no way. <laughs> I'm gonna. I've already contradicted myself because I said I was going to recommend something else. Uh, I'm actually <laughs> going to recommend Hawkeye, um, but by Fraction and David Aya. Um, just because to me, I, I mean, I was complaining about that, that sort of balance between gravity and comedy. And I think Hawkeye has it perfect. Uh, so you can see a lot of the good stuff of Jimmy Olsen with a lot of the stuff that I was needlessly whining about feeling like I didn't have in this one. Um, yeah, it's a great run. It's a famous run uh, and lives up to the hype and will be the basis of the Hawkeye TV series. That's coming. Yeah. Out. So, I was just mm, thinking fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a great, it is a great run. I mean, it gets, I feel like it's one of those runs that's easy to be like, Oh, it's been hyped so much. Can it possibly live up to that? But it's just, it's a really good run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I might've recommended this on the pod at some point before, but I'm just going to recommend the Jack Kirby, Mr. Miracle series from the 1970s. Um, it's ties in sort of tangentially with this Jimmy Olsen series in the sense that it's part of the fourth world stuff. But yeah, that's just a really fascinating series in terms of it's got all the typical Kirby stuff that we've already talked about, but it also has, you know, some really sort of deep and interesting metaphors in terms of the relationship between like freedom and escape and, you know, this hero who, <laughs> this hero whose skill is getting out of traps. Right. And, 
he's an escapist and he does a lot of really interesting visual and sort of metaphorical things with that as well. I mean, it's definitely a case where the visuals are inseparable from, I mean, if you just had the script, it wouldn't be that. But when you have sort of images of Scott Free, you know, tied up in a ridiculous straitjacket of chains and figuring out his way out of that and the relationship between Scott Free, um, so Mr. Miracle and Big Barda is just also wonderful and supposedly sort of based on Jack Kirby's own wife. And um, I love the character of Barda so, so, so much. She is, you know, huge and bombastic and unapologetic. And uh, she has sort of a gender flipped relationship with Scott in a certain way, but not, it's not as simple as that. Um, They sort of both are sort of masculine and feminine and kind of shifting ways. And that's portrayed both in the text and visually in ways that I just love. They're one of my favorite superhero couples. And so that's my rec. All right. Uh, That's it for us on this episode. We'll be back next month.